Happy Easter, everybody. In uh, Luke chapter 24, verse 1, it says, On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and they went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood before them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day, raise again. Then they remembered his words. What a, an awesome story. But what a powerful statement that last statement is, is what I want to focus on here today. Then they remembered his words. Here they are standing by the empty tomb. What's going on in their heads? Well, it tells us they're remembering the things Jesus said. Maybe they remembered back in John chapter 2 when Jesus had come into the temple courts and instead of finding a place that was allowing people to come and freely worship, there were men selling cattle and they were selling doves, they were selling cat, uh, sheep. And Jesus drives them out saying, my father's house is a house of prayer. It's a house of worship for all nations, for all people, but you are making it a den of robbers, a den of thieves. You are ripping people off from being able to come and worship God by demanding that they follow these religious practices. Well, some of the religious leaders asked them, what authority can you do this? What authority can you say this? And in John chapter 2, verse 19, Jesus answered, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it again. And he was talking about the temple of his body, that he would be, by his resurrection, he would show that he has authority to do what he's doing. He has authority to say what he is saying. And that was established by his resurrection. As that, and now that they were there, standing by this empty tomb, then his words is what they began to remember. Or maybe some of them were thinking about that time when his buddy Lazarus had died. Jesus had traveled to get to where they had buried him. And when Jesus got there in John chapter 11, verse 25, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And just so his statement was taken seriously, I think, just so he wanted to make sure that we got this point, he then goes to Lazarus' grave and he says, come on out, Lazarus, and Lazarus raises from the dead. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. It is through him that sin is ultimately taken care of and life eternal is established. In John chapter 6, verse 40, he says, For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up in the last day. This hope that this life is not all there is, is what Jesus is declaring through his resurrection, that eternal life is now available. And in John chapter 14, verse one, he says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, also believe in me. 
In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, so, I would have told you. But I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back. I will take you to where I am so that you could be where I am. I am the way and the truth and the life. And nobody comes to the Father except through me. And as they are now standing at this empty tomb, then they remembered his words. But you see, Jesus didn't just speak about after death hope. Sometimes we think that it's just all about after we die, but he didn't just speak about that. He spoke about our lives. He spoke about his kingdom being established within us right here, right now, resurrecting in newness, in power, in hope. Maybe some of them thought about what he said in John 10. The thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. But I came that they may have life and have it to the full. I came for life, that you would have it here and now, fullness of life. And then what does he say right after that? He says, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and to take it back up again. See, Jesus had spoken of a resurrecting life, experiencing life to the full by him and through him. That's what he came to bring. And he would lay his life down, pay the price for the sin and the brokenness of this world, but raise it again to establish his kingdom here and now on this earth in and through us once and for all. And as they that day were standing at an empty tomb, then they remembered his words. Maybe they were thinking about this little discussion he had in John 16, very later in his ministry, man, getting towards the end. And in John 16, Jesus had said something. He said, in a little while, you will see me no more. And then, after a little while, you will see me. They were confused by this and they started talking amongst themselves and talking to Jesus. Like, what are you talking about? You're going to see you, then we're not going to see you, then we're going to see you again. What are you talking about? It was at that time in John 16, if you were to look at it, that Jesus finally just gets real clear. I'm going to be turned over. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be killed, but I will raise. I will raise. And the lights began to go on for those following him. They began to understand at that time in John 16, during this discussion, Jesus was truly gonna die, but he was gonna raise from the dead, conquering sin and death once for all. The righteous giving his life for the unrighteous to bring us back to God. And as that light went on, as it, became, it began to become more clear, Jesus makes a statement that I think is such a powerful statement of this new resurrecting hope in our daily lives today. And it's in John 16, where he says this, I have told you these things. And he's talking about that I'm gonna go, I'm gonna die, but I will raise again. I've told you these things so that in me, you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Yes, there will be trouble. Yes, there will be difficulties, but Jesus has risen from the dead. He has overcome sin and death. There will be light out of darkness. There will be hope 
in the midst of what might look hopeless, there will be beauty that comes from ashes and there will be peace with God right now, right here today in and through Christ. And all this is flowing from the foundation that we are loved by God, which was put on display when Jesus gave his life to take care of sins and then rose in victory on the third day. And as they were standing next to that open tomb, then they remembered his words. Maybe they could begin to hear more clearly Jesus' calls to them. Jesus' invitation. Maybe they thought of Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, when they said, come to me, he said, all you who are weary and burdened, come to me and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me for I am humble and gentle in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That statement from Jesus is just, this is the power of the grace of God in all its power, all its beauty right there as Jesus is calling us to himself to find rest for our souls with no strings attached, no hoops to jump through, no cleaning up your act first and then come, but rest. Rest from the burdens of sin for they have now been taken care of and paid for by his death. He is calling us to rest. Rest from the burdens of religious duties that we think we need to do that are required to be loved, forgiven and accepted by God. For by his resurrection, life has been established. He is humble, he is gentle. His requirements are easy and light. Come to me, he says, come, trust, receive rest for your souls. And as they were standing next to that empty tomb, then they remembered his words. You see, the resurrection is not just part of the story. It's the central part of the story. It is that part of the story that puts on display God's love, hope, and life that he cares. It puts on display that we can trust him as we remember those words that Jesus spoke on this Easter Sunday, just like they did 2,000 years ago, standing next to that empty tomb. You see, we are not only saved by his grace, but we are also empowered to a life that is daily resurrecting through his grace. That's the power of his word that teaches us and leads us and guides us and empowers us and through the power of his Holy Spirit that dwells within us, bringing us to new life today and now. I think Paul got that as he wrote his books. In Romans, he wrote to the church of Rome. And in Romans chapter eight, he said, and if the spirit who raised Jesus from the dead now lives in you, well, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. I hope that today you will remember his words like they did 2,000 years ago. That you will remember his words. That you will trust in his grace. And that you will begin to experience the resurrecting life through him that he promises. We're going to close our time today by...
Uh, talking about how this resurrected life impacts us, impacts our world. Keep in mind the story of Jesus Christ is often presented as something that has taken place 2,000 years ago, his life, his death, his resurrection. And there's a lot of important events that are taking place even this week to commemorate that. But the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ means something very powerful and very profound for us today. It really means to receive God's grace and to enjoy the wonder of that grace. But for a lot of people who go to church, a lot of people who are involved in, in a religion are not really living a life of grace. In fact, if we go to church, oftentimes it's anything but gracious. In fact, we go to church and what we hear very often is a list of things that we should avoid doing and a list of things we need to do. And if we keep ourselves clean from these negative things and devote ourselves to these positive things, then we will unlock God's blessing. We will unlock answered prayers. He'll make our life, you know, go well for us. And he may even have us escape the fires of hell itself. This is the normal rhythm of church life. It was certainly the rhythm of my church life early on. In fact, when I was in uh, elementary school, uh, it's when we first started attending Rancho Community Church in the old site. And, um, and, and on Easter, I have to tell you, as a little kid, the last thing I wanted to do was go to church. I had my plan. You know, Easter was like a, a mini Christmas. You didn't get all the gifts of Christmas, but you got something, you know, one or two things, and you got a bunch of candy. So my dream for Easter morning was to play with my little, you know, new toy and then to eat myself sick till I throw up on candy. That was my plan. And going to church did not fit into that plan. But sure enough, my mom would knock on the door. Hey, time to go to church. And I'm like, no, I'm sick. I have chicken pox for the fifth time. It happens every Easter, right? I just, I, I did not want to go to church. But we ended up going. And um, it was, as I had expected as a little kid, you know, you sit through music and don't quite connect with the style. And, and you hear a message and don't quite understand it. And you kind of you leave. And that was, that was my elementary school experience. But then in middle school, things opened up a little bit more. Uh, Rancho Community Church at the time on our original campus had a, a youth group, as we do today, that's open up to the community. And they had a great time. They opened up their new gym to the community. And uh, so we'd all you know, kind of pour in there and have a good time. And there was you know, some ladies there that I was eyeing up and all that. So that's why I went to church. But then they would have us all go to a, a room for a Bible study. And a whole group of us would ditch. We'd head out the back door, ditch, we were gone. We went across the street to the condos, or Carl's Jr. was the only fast food restaurant in this whole corridor, and we went there and hung out, and that was just the way it was. Now, when I started going to the youth group part, the Bible study part, it was as I expected. It was a list of things I shouldn't do and a list of things I should do. And that's the normal church experience. In fact, for um, probably all of us who have been raised in a church, there is this culture of failure, a culture of guilt. Uh, so this whiteboard represents the holiness of God, right? We're taught that God is holy, that God is pure, and of course he is. But then we're taught, in contrast, how impure we are, how unholy we are. And so we'll sit in church services and we will be told how much of a sinner we are. And pastor might say, hey, listen, you know what? The things that come out of your mouth are just not good. You know, talking to a youth group, it's, hey, watch those swear words. It's like, that's what I do for a living. You're telling me not to swear? And uh, maybe anger comes out of our mouth. And there, there are stains against the holy standards that God has for us. Uh, there's anger that pours out. You know, we can be angry towards our siblings when we're young, angry, angry towards our spouse. Um, you know, there's all kinds of things that we might be angry at, angry on the road, angry at work. That anger tarnishes the purity that God wants from us. Our thoughts, we're told that um, not only does God look at the outward, but he looks at the inward, knows our thoughts and motives. 
And again, when you're a kid, you're like, wow, there's some not good stuff in this head here, right? Um, there's lusts and fantasies and things like that. And you're told in church, those are all wrong. You know, a thought is as bad as the real thing. It's like, I got some bad stuff going on. Or maybe thoughts of anger and vengeance towards people. Uh, perhaps there's things that we do that are uh, wrong and we just can't seem to shake these bad habits. Whatever these bad habits are, you know, for some people, they can be pretty innocuous, just things I know I shouldn't be doing that are unhealthy, you know, eating, the things we say, that kind of stuff. But then there's some serious things that could turn into big-time problems, you know, that are just, again, scars against the holy standards of God. And for some, maybe it's an addiction. There is an alcohol addiction. There is a drug addiction. There's just some scar here uh, against the holiness of God. There's a pornography addiction. These are the things that we're doing that are heavy uh, guilt uh, upon us. Uh, especially as we um, are in a religious environment. Perhaps we've done something terrible, a, a regret that haunts us. Uh, maybe we've done something you know, horrible against somebody that we love. We've hurt them deeply. Uh, perhaps we took something that wasn't ours. Perhaps we had an abortion. And, and these things are heavy, heavy guilt uh, that we care, uh, carry around. Um, and then, of course, you go to church. And when you go to church, there's all kinds of guilt about all kinds of little things. You know, you should be reading your Bible more, you should be praying more, and you should be, you know, going to church more, you should be obeying, you should be sharing your faith. You know, there's this whole world of shame that emerges. This whole world of shame emerges, especially in church. And, and there's been a lot of study about shame. There's actually a whole psychology around shame. And there has been a lot of work, a lot of books written about it. And shame needs four things. Shame needs judgment. Any judgment going on in churches? <laughs> Blame. You know, somebody's at fault here. That certainly happens in churches. Uh, standards. And um, high standards, right? And in church world, it's like the holiness of God. We have to meet the standard of the holiness of God. And then, of course, um, there is uh, image, a bad self-image. And that doesn't just happen in church. That starts from birth, right? When you're very small, you got to be more talented. You have to be more athletic, more artistic, better in school, better dressed. Can't be too big. You can't be too small. You got to be just right, right? This is a lifestyle, not just in church, but in life, a lifestyle of shame. This happens, you know, in our years growing up. This happens in our relationships where people are always accentuating the negatives and where we fall short. It definitely happens in church definitely happens in church. Polk uh, Culpepper wrote this about shame in church. He said, many churches teach the doctrine of shame. He actually calls it a formal doctrine. Now, we don't formalize it. We don't talk about it as a formal doctrine, but it's how we, we exist as a church, and it's how we teach so often. We, we lay it on people as though it's some formal doctrine. We teach the doctrine of shame without really knowing it. For example, he says, a core shame message might be taught that we need to be like Jesus. You know, be like Jesus. You know, what WWJD, what would Jesus do, right? And if we fail to meet that standard, we've not only failed ourselves, but we failed God. And as a result, he will deem of us that we don't measure up, that we will be disappoint, uh, disappoint, he would be disappointed in us. He will not answer our prayers. He will not bless our life. He might actually punish us by causing things to go wrong. And worse yet, he may condemn us to eternal fire. It's a culture of shame. This is the normal church experience. Then Jesus comes to turn the whole thing upside down and to create a whole new identity. 
In fact, in Ephesians 1, verse 7, it's a key passage. Ephesians 1, 7 says this. In Christ, we have a new identity, or more formally, a redeemed identity. We have a redeemed identity. In other words, Jesus buys back an old identity for a new identity. And how did he do that? How does Jesus give a new identity? In his blood. That might sound pretty weird, but follow me here. He gives us a whole new identity by his blood. Keep in mind, in ancient religions, and this is true of Bible times as well, there was the blood of an animal that was spilled to give people the impression that somehow their sins would be atoned for or forgiven. So if somebody would sin against God and then they would sacrifice an animal, spill the blood of an animal, they might think to themselves, well, okay, somebody, something paid the price for my sin. This is normal in a lot of ancient religions, including during Bible times. But what would happen is countless hundreds of thousands, millions of animals would be slaughtered for no reason, for no reason, because the blood of an animal can't take away the failure of a man. I mean, that's just insane. But it was this religious system in order to give us the impression that somehow some price was being paid. Well, Jesus rides into Jerusalem during that Passover week, and that Passover week, by the way, is when every single family in Jerusalem would slaughter an animal to give them the impression that their sins would be forgiven. Jesus says enough of this, enough of the slaughtering of animals, enough of the, uh, uh, the identity of shame culture. And so Jesus says, I will spill my blood. My blood will be spilled. And he gave himself to be crucified on a cross. And when the Son of God laid his life down, he says, enough with this animal sacrifice, enough with this whole system of religion that pretends like things that we do are somehow earning our status with God. Jesus says, no, I am here as the Son of God from the Heavenly Father to buy back this old identity and to give you a whole new identity, not of shame or guilt or failure or sin, but a new identity of forgiveness. We're clean. In fact, God says later in Ephesians chapter one that he declares us perfect. He says this new identity that I give you through Jesus Christ declares you are perfect because our failures were placed on the body of Christ. Our failures were paid for by the death of Christ. And when Jesus walked out of the grave, he did so sinless, which meant the sins that he bore upon himself are done away with. They are gone. Your sins and mine are gone. Your condemnation and mine are gone. Your shame and mine are gone because Christ rose from the dead, holy, pure, and righteous. The failures of the world he paid for on the cross, they're done away with, paid in full. They don't exist. And he walked out of the grave, clean, righteous, holy, forgiven. And he says, that's the gift I give you. Ephesians 1 goes on to say that we are chosen by God, our heavenly Father, to be adopted as sons and daughters. He's not some brooding judge. He's a heavenly father, and he wants you to know his love. He wants you to know his embrace. He wants you to know that nothing can separate you from him, not only your own failures. Our failures are gone. They're paid for in full. We are clean, holy, and blameless in his sight. That's our new identity. There's nothing that separates us from God. The question for us today is, do you believe that? Do you believe it? That's really the question. For those of you who might have been raised in religious environments, you might actually believe that you have to do your part to earn God's grace, to earn answered prayers, to earn his blessing in your life, or to earn eternal life. You might believe you have to do your part. And let me just be brutally honest. If you believe you have to work your way up to God, 
That means you don't believe that Jesus Christ paid in full for your failures and gives you righteousness as a gift. That's what it means. So there are people all over the Christian world that believe they have to do their part to earn their standing with God or to earn their eternal life. That means they don't believe in the free gift of God through Jesus Christ. So so I'm encouraging, we do this every week at Rancho, encouraging Christians to place their faith in Jesus and not in their own works or religion. And that's a big move for people because we want to say, I can do it. I'm gonna get my life right. I've got to be obedient. I've got to be right. I've got to be religious. And we spend our lives in our religious worlds trying to become something that God would approve of. And God simply says, listen, I approve of you exactly as you are with all your faults, flaws, and failures because all of them were placed on the body of Christ who paid for them in full and he walked out of the grave clean. God says, I look at you as clean. I look at you as clean. We're gonna close in a prayer of faith. And that prayer of faith embraces the free gift of God through Christ. It doesn't say, God, I'm gonna do better and I'm gonna do more and I'm gonna be more hardcore and more all in and more sold out and more religious. Enough of that, right? That has no more effect than the blood of a lamb being spilled, right? It's all about what Jesus Christ did for us, took our failures upon himself, took the punishment upon himself, paid for it in full. Now we are clean in Christ. And we get to enjoy that new life in Christ right here, right now, and we get to enjoy that forever with him. That's the wonder of his grace. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for this great love that you've given us through Jesus Christ. We thank you that we don't have to rely on our own goodness, our own works, our own religion to earn any standing with you. You declare us clean, forgiven, holy and blameless. That's who we are because of what Jesus did for us. We believe in Jesus. We believe that his life, death, and resurrection was sufficient to forgive us of every failure, past, present, and future, that we are raised to a new life and an unbroken and unbreakable relationship with you 100% because of your grace. That's what we receive today. We do not rely on religion or good works to earn anything before our heavenly Father. You declare us your perfect sons and perfect daughters, and we believe that. There's a new identity, no longer identified by shame and guilt and judgment and fear, but our identity is sons and daughters of the Most High God, our loving, gracious, forgiving Heavenly Father. We receive that grace and eternal life through Christ and Christ alone. In his name we pray, amen.